Welcome to our webcast on the advantages of New Hampshire Trusts. I'm Todd Eckler, Chief Marketing Officer at Fiduciary Trust, and today you'll hear from two of the most knowledgeable experts on this topic. Steve Burke, a Director, Attorney, and Licensed CPA with 25 years of experience at McLean Middleton, one of New Hampshire's premier law firms, and Thonda Broussard, who's General Counsel and a Director at Fiduciary Trusts of New England, the largest independent New Hampshire trust company. Both Steve and Thonda have written and spoken extensively on the benefits of New Hampshire Trust and have served a wide range of clients from high net worth families to family offices and private trust companies. For new and many existing trusts, New Hampshire is arguably the best trust environment for families nationwide and can also be attractive for those outside the US. In today's discussion, you'll learn what are the key benefits of New Hampshire's trust laws? How do these advantages compare to other trust-favorable states? What's the outlook for further advancement of New Hampshire's trust laws? And importantly, what steps do you need to take to establish or migrate a trust to New Hampshire? You'll also hear a few examples of how Thonda and Steve's clients have achieved significant tax, asset protection, estate transfer, and other benefits from utilizing the Granite State's trust laws. Now I'll turn it over to Steve to kick off today's discussion. Thank you, Todd, and thanks to the Fiduciary Trust Company for the opportunity to be here today. And Thonda, it's always great to speak with you uh, about the, New Ham the, the tremendous advantage of the New Hampshire trust law, which has been so helpful to so many of our clients as they work to preserve wealth for their families for multiple generations in a very tax favored environment. Uh, now, Thonda, if you could help us with some of the major highlights of the New Hampshire Trust Code. Thanks, Steve. It is truly my pleasure today to be here with you to talk about one of our favorite topics, which is why New Hampshire is one of the best jurisdictions to establish and administer trusts, or as you and I like to say, why the Granite State rocks at administering trusts. Um, I would be happy to do that, uh, to give an overview of what these great trust laws are, and then I think we should probably take a closer look at some of the most popular laws amongst advisors and clients that are being utilized today. So let's start this conversation by saying that today, when establishing a trust, it is really important to consider trust situs, or in other words, in what state the trust will be administered. In considering which state might be the best place to administer a trust, clients and advisors have looked more and more to New Hampshire over the past 15 or so years. And now in 2021, New Hampshire has a great reputation as being a place for administering trusts. You know that. Why is that? Well, clients establish New Hampshire, New Hampshire trusts or migrate trusts to New Hampshire to take advantage of the numerous benefits, which include the following. One important one, no tax on accumulated income or capital gains for irrevocable non-grantor trusts. You're gonna talk a little bit more about that in a few minutes. Some of the best, most progressive trust laws in the nation are in New Hampshire. And these trust laws allow for creation of the following types of trusts and wealth management vehicles, which we'll touch on more later. So perpetual or dynasty trusts, as they're called. These are trusts which continue indefinitely and do not term terminate within a mandated time period, self-settled asset protection trusts, quiet trusts, civil law foundations, and fun fact on that one, Steve, I know you know this, 
But for our audience, New Hampshire was the first state to permit creation of these wealth management vehicles by statute. Other types of vehicles which are helpful to clients, regulated and unregulated family trust companies, directed and divided trusts, and total return trusts. Now, New Hampshire has some of the best laws for administering trust too. And we've talked about that a little bit, but here are some of the laws that I think are really important for our clients and for their advisors. Virtual representation. When an act, that means when an action by someone binds his or her descendants. Trustee modification by statute without beneficiary consent. Sometimes that's helpful. Pre-mortem validation of trusts. And that means validating a trust prior to death through a statutory process which helps later on after death to streamline the administration process. Unitrusts and the trustee power to adjust, we'll talk about that a little bit more. Those fall under the New Hampshire Principal and Income Act. Non-judicial settlement agreements is another one. And a very popular one and much discussed, decanting. We'll talk about that one a little bit more too. One other point that I'd like to make is that New Hampshire also has its own dedicated trust court with experienced judges who handle complex trust litigation. Much of New Hampshire's laws supporting fixing trusts and dealing with disputes out of court exist, but if you really need to go to court, you can rest assured that your case in New Hampshire will be handled by judges with expertise who focus on these specific types of disputes, which can get very complicated and very expensive to litigate. So Steve, I think I have presented very generally some good evidence as to why New Hampshire is a great place to administer a trust. There are clearly significant benefits that New Hampshire's trust laws can provide to individuals and families all over the US and frankly, all over the world. In fact, I would say that New Hampshire is one of the top states in the US to administer a trust, if not the best. So after making this very bold statement, the obvious next question, Steve, which I'm going to pose to you, is how do New Hampshire's trust and tax laws compare to other states? Steve, can you give us an overview of the similarities and differences of New Hampshire trust law with the laws of other jurisdictions? Absolutely, Thonda. I'd like to first start with a quick history lesson, if that's okay. Trusts have been around for quite some time, and, and really what we're seeing today is a reflection of kind of a rigid law that has been in place literally for centuries. Um, if you think back, trusts actually were created, believe it or not, during the Crusades, when farmers leaving for war actually left their property in the hands of their neighbors, only to come back from war to find out that their neighbors weren't so keen on giving up the property again. So courts at that time looked at it and said, we need to create a system of equitable title and legal title. Equitable title being, of course, the original farmer keeping their land and legal title being the farmer who held the property for the benefit of the farmer going off to war. And that concept really has been quite rigid and consistent from about the 13th century almost to today. And what we're seeing, as Thonda mentioned, uh, when in describing the changes over the past 15 years really has been a revolution. Uh, in trust law by a few states. And of course, as Thonda mentioned, we think New Hampshire is best in class. But some of the other states have also done a tremendous job as well. And those states include Delaware, Nevada, and South Dakota. Again, as Thonda mentioned, we think New Hampshire 
matches up quite favorably in comparison to those states. And some of the issues that, that or some of the unique uh, provisions of the New Hampshire Trust Law that Thonda mentioned are worth really considering in this light. The first, of course, state income taxes. We'll, we'll talk about this a little bit later, but of course, New Hampshire is known as a no tax or very light tax state. And as, as is the case of Delaware, Nevada, and South Dakota. And then perpetual trust. New Hampshire has decided that the rule against perpetuities, which we'll also talk about in a, in a little bit, really was it should be inapplicable. And having perpetual trust really would be of a great advantage to, to many folks deciding to cite trust in New Hampshire. And of course, that's true of Delaware, Nevada, and South Dakota, but New Hampshire has a clear repeal of the statute, which is unlike some of the other states. And, and very unique to New Hampshire, is its, as Thonda mentioned, is the dedicated trust court, which is a real advantage, where you've got litigants going in to either modify a trust into court instead of having a judge that just saw a trip and fall case or maybe a personal injury case or a divorce case. Previously, these judges are focused exclusively on the administration of New, Hampshire, New Hampshire's trust law. So they're expert in it. And really, the result is a much clearer um, interpretation of the New Hampshire trust law. And then as Thonda also mentioned, some of the other major provisions that New Hampshire offers involving directed or divided trust are also available in some of the other states, as well as statutory decantings, the ability to take a trust, and we'll talk about this later as well, and pour it into another trust. And that can be incredibly useful when moving a trust from one state to another or fixing some um, mistakes or problems with old and rigid trusts. And then as Thonda also mentioned, New Hampshire has uh, a great provision in the trust code relating to total return or unit trust provisions. The definition of income really has been so antiquated under the trust law. And New Hampshire, the New Hampshire statute has allowed a much more progressive and modern interpretation of that definition of income so that it reflects the actual investment of trusts outside of interest and dividend income into capital gain and capital appreciation. And again, one of the unique features of the New Hampshire Trust Code is, is private trust companies, the ability of families to get together and to create their own trust company themselves. Uh, this can be incredibly, incredibly beneficial and it can be done on an unregulated basis. Uh, again, the, the capital requirements for regulated trust companies in New Hampshire is often very, much lower than some of the other states that we've discussed. Uh, and as Thonda also mentioned, the New Hampshire legislature has really been uh, done a great job of modernizing the, the New Hampshire Trust Code over the last 15 years or so. And that's really been uh, an effort. And, and Thonda, perhaps you can take a few minutes just talking about the efforts uh, that, that, that the New Hampshire legislature has undertaken. Yes, ha happy to, Steve. Um, and, and thank you for, for walking through that. You know, when, when choosing a trust situs, it's not only important to know that it has features that meet your needs today, Steve, I think it's also important to know that the state's legislature supports the laws that exist and that the legislature is continually enhancing the trust laws. And that's why I think we should add one more benefit to this list, and that's New Hampshire's proactive and, and very active legislature. Uh, New Hampshire has always been a state with progressive trust laws that focus on carrying out donor intent, which is really the focus of New Hampshire trust law. And New Hampshire has always had really great case law supporting donors intent. 
But in 2006, the New Hampshire legislature passed the Trust Modernization and Competitiveness Act, which really codified New Hampshire case law and created some very clear and practical statutory rules, which catapulted New Hampshire, in my opinion, probably yours, into the front of the pack of states with some of the best trust laws in the nation. And over the past decade, New Hampshire has continued to thoughtfully and carefully improve its trust laws every year to become one of the top states to administer a trust. The New Hampshire legislature looks carefully at what improvements it can make to the trust laws based on trust law activities around the country. And it considers whether those laws, if they don't already exist in New Hampshire, whether they should. Every year, new legislation is proposed by the New Hampshire Bar and vetted by New Hampshire attorneys and other interested groups in order to continue to provide the best solutions to the financial and planning issues of individuals and families all over the world. So for this reason, I I would consider adding New Hampshire's nimble and proactive legislature as another great advantage to administering a trust in New Hampshire. Okay, Steve, I think we provided a good overview on the advantages of New Hampshire trust laws. So I think it's time to dig a little bit deeper into some of the benefits of New Hampshire's trust laws, starting with the tax benefits. Steve, can you walk us through the tax advantages of setting up a New Hampshire trust? Yes, of course. Thanks, Thonda. And of course, New Hampshire has long been known as a low tax or no tax jurisdiction. New Hampshire prides itself on the fact that it has no broad-based state income tax on its residents. It's the hallmark of of New Hampshire tax system. And, and New Hampshire just relies on other methods of raising revenue. The only income tax that actually exists in New Hampshire is a tax on interest and dividend income uh, assessed on its residents or individual residents of New Hampshire. When designing the New Hampshire Trust Code, the New Hampshire legislature looked hard at this and specifically exempted New Hampshire trusts from this interest and dividends tax. So now the result is for most New Hampshire trusts that are separate taxpayers, and I'll talk about that in just a second, there's no tax on any investment income. So there's no tax on interest income, there's no tax on dividend income, there's no tax on capital gain, there's really no tax on this on these trusts. So what this does is really enables trusts that are cited in New Hampshire and subjected to New Hampshire um, Citus for New Hampshire tax purposes to grow state income tax free. And over time, that can be a tremendous advantage to families who cite trusts in New Hampshire because growing the, the trust corpus state income tax free can be a tremendous advantage and result in tremendous increase in the value of the trust assets over time. Now, as I mentioned, there's no tax on trust interest in dividend income or capital gain or on trust accumulation. And this is true of so-called non-grantor trusts, trusts that for federal income tax purposes are separate taxpayers, separate and apart from the grantor, the person who created the trust. Has a, those trusts have separate ID numbers, and if the trusts are structured properly and they have New Hampshire situs and are not cited in any other tax jurisdiction, as I said, the income in that trust grows state income tax-free. Of course, those trusts are also subject to federal taxation applicable to trusts, so distributions to trust beneficiaries, so-called carry-out distributable net income. So, of course, if a trust has income and makes a distribution, that distribution will have 
as its attributes, carrying out interest in dividend income if there's interest in dividend income in the trust to the trust beneficiaries, and that would be reported to them on a Schedule K-1. Without those distributions, the accumulations, or to, to the extent their accumulations, grow state income tax-free. Now, many people also establish trusts in New Hampshire, which are so-called grantor trusts for federal income tax purposes. And of course, grantor trusts are those trusts which are treated as if they are st the, the trust property is still owned by the grantor or the so-called owner of the trust. That means that the trusts are ignored for federal income tax purposes. And of course, that means that the trust income is reportable directly on the grantor's return. And of course, that can be a tremendous advantage for state and gift tax purposes as the grantor shoulders or the burden of taxation for the benefit of the beneficiaries without using any of their estate or gift, gift tax exemption. So New Hampshire is a tremendous place to cite trust from, a, from an income tax perspective, and many people come to New Hampshire really for that purpose. But there are many other purposes, uh, Thonda. One of them, of course, is asset protection, the ability to protect assets in the trust from the creditors of the trust beneficiaries, including divorcing spouses. And hopefully you can talk a little bit about that for us today. Absolutely, Steve. Asset protection trusts are really interesting. Back in the day, I remember when clients would look to offshore their assets to get some of the benefits that now exist when you onshore your assets and have asset protection trusts in the United States. There's, there are a few states in the nation, New Hampshire being one of them, where you can set up a so-called self-settled asset protection trust. And these have really become a great tool for protecting family wealth. So a self-settled asset protection trust is an irrevocable trust that's established by a donor who is also a discretionary beneficiary of the trust. The donor can retain a limited power to appoint the assets during lifetime or at death, but because the donor is importantly not a trustee and has irrevo irrevocably transferred assets to the trust, the assets in the trust are treated as a separate le legal entity from the donor and out of the donor's control for creditor protection purposes. It is also important to note that the donor is still the donor for estate tax purposes. So assets in these trusts are usually still includable in the donor's estate to some degree because the donor has retained an interest in them. But that's not the purpose of this trust. This trust is really to protect the assets from creditors. The trustee of a New Hampshire asset protection trust does not need to be a New Hampshire resident but it's probably best to name a New Hampshire trustee to support the structure and also to limit the states in which creditor claims may be brought. There's a time limit on the time to bring claims against an, a self-settled asset protection trust. The general rule is that trust assets are protected for most creditors for four years after the assets are transferred or for creditors that exist at the time of the transfer one year after they knew or should have known of the transfer of those assets into the trust. Two important exceptions to this rule include child support and basic alimony claims, so claims for food, shelter, and medical needs. However, it is important to note that these exception creditors can only attach present or future trust distributions, and that makes the New Hampshire Self-Settled Asset Protection Trust a really useful tool in protecting family wealth. 
Steve, let's shift gears now and talk a little bit about another benefit of New Hampshire, which is the ability to establish a dynasty trust. Many states have statutorily mandated limitations or rules against perpetuities, uh, and these are limitations on how long a trust can be in existence. And this can complicate multi-generational wealth planning. Steve, how would you describe the rules in place in many states on this front? And tell us how New Hampshire is different. Thanks, Thonda. Yes, this is an, this is an incredible benefit of the New Hampshire Trust Code. Um, the rule against perpetuities, which has many law students still have nightmares over uh, studying really became in existence as a result of the consolidation of wealth in Great Britain in the 1700s. And really, the rule is quite simple. It says that families should not be able to consolidate wealth in a trust in perpetuity. The idea was that there were about 10 people that seemed that owned all of the property in Great Britain at the time. So the solution was to break up the trust. Unfortunately, that rule remained in place until the present day. And the rule itself as stated, sounds quite simple, but is actually quite complex in application. The rule says that an interest must vest within 21 years after some life and being at the creation of the interest. 21 years after some life and being at the creation of the interest. What does that mean? Really, in the trust context, what it means is that if you create a trust, you have to identify measuring lives, people in existence at the time benefiting under the trust. And then you measure their life and the trust can last for their life plus 21 years. Now that could be a very long time and it often is a very long time. The problem is that at the end of that rule against perpetuities period, the trust assets are distributed or to be distributed outright to the trust beneficiaries who could be minors and really not in a position to receive a significant distribution of wealth at that time. So as a result, a few states, including New Hampshire, um, said, you know what, this rule against perpetuities has been in place in our law, in the common law, in the Uniform Trust Code for 400 years. It's time to revisit that. And New Hampshire decided to do that and did just that by repealing the rule. So what that means is that you can now create a trust in New Hampshire that's, as Thonda said, perpetual. Perpetual means that if Generation 1 contributes property to the trust, it can benefit generation two and three and four and five in perpetuity. And also that can be a tremendous tax advantage because if that same individual contributed the property to a trust and applied the so-called generation skipping tax or GST exemption to that gift and a gift tax was filed and, or an estate tax return was filed telling the IRS of the application of that exemption, now you've got a trust that's perpetual Assets can grow in that trust and never be subjected to the estate tax again. So again, when you think about the ability to accumulate assets in a trust, state income tax-free, and with now with the repeal of the rule against perpetuities, a state and gift tax-free, this can really benefit a family for multiple generations. But of course, the accumulation of wealth uh, can, can also be something that you really need to be careful about. For, especially for younger beneficiaries. So Thonda, New Hampshire came up with a way to, be, to protect those beneficiaries from merely even the knowledge of those trusts through something called the concept of a quiet trust. Could you talk to us a little bit about quiet trusts? Sure thing, Steve. In many states, under certain circumstances, trustees must give beneficiaries notice of certain things, which include a trust's existence, 
a trustee's name and contact information, and in some cases, a copy of the trust document. In New Hampshire, this default rule can be overridden by the trust terms, making it what we call a quiet trust. In other words, the trust instrument can eliminate or modify any or all parts of the statutory notice requirements. The trust can also designate an individual as a notice recipient who determines who receives these notices and when, instead of relying on the statutory default of qualified beneficiaries. So for families who are concerned that knowledge of the extent of family wealth will affect their descendants' life choices, quiet trust can be used to keep the trust existence quiet until an appropriate time based on the family's circumstances. Steve, our next topic is a discussion of, of New Hampshire trust law and how it allows flexibility in trust administration. One of my favorite topics, actually. But before we talk about that, I thought we might touch briefly on a relatively new law, which I mentioned earlier on. This is the law which allows the establishment of civil law foundations, which is another example of how the Granite State continually enhances its trust laws. And as I mentioned before, it's worth noting again that New Hampshire was the first state in the nation to allow for the creation of civil law foundations. Steve, can you summarize what civil law foundations are and what their potential benefits are? Sure. Thank, thanks, Thonda. Yes. So there are many jurisdictions throughout Europe and around the world, including Central and South America, that simply don't recognize the concept of a trust. They ignore it and the transfer of assets to a trust are really treated in some circumstances as if owned directly by the beneficiaries or continue to be owned by the grantor of a trust. And in some situations, the transfer to a vehicle like this can cause adverse tax consequences or other adverse consequences. So the use of a trust in those jurisdictions really is not done. Uh, instead, those jurisdictions look to almost a corporate-like vehicle that has real existence for under their laws. And the problem with that is that the transfer of assets to those corporate-like entities is very inefficient from both an administration and a tax perspective. So those jurisdictions created many years ago the concept of a foundation or civil foundation. Now this is not a charitable foundation, but rather a foundation created for the benefit of a family. And the attributes of this foundation, uh, as Thonda mentioned earlier, are a little, little uh, somewhat akin to a combination between a corporation and a trust. And they, they did not exist in the United States, but, but throughout Europe, as I said, in Central and South America, many wealthy families use these foundations as in the same manner as in which we use trusts to hold assets for the benefit of their family for generations to come. Again, these concepts didn't exist uh, in the United States until 2017 when New Hampshire created the first Civil Foundation Act. And essentially what this allows is those families from abroad to be able to move their wealth to the United States to create a vehicle, a civil foundation, that's recognized in their jurisdiction as a real entity or a real transfer of wealth, and also in the United States as a trust. So these civil foundations, again, have the attributes of both a corporation and a trust. The benefits of these foundations, as Thonda mentioned, is really to allow the assets to be held independently from the founders or the grantors of the trust. 
and also to have a governance akin to a corporation with directors. And foundations, of course, can be, can be held in perpetuity. So again, no rule against perpetuity applies to these. And as Thanda mentioned before, another uh, tremendous benefit of the New Hampshire Trust Code is the ability to create family or private foundations. And these civil law foundations can be used for that purpose. So it can be an incredible way for a family with international wealth to move their assets to the United States. And we've seen a lot of that lately where jurisdictions or families in jurisdictions where they're worried about unrest or uh, instability in their local or state or country, excuse me, country law, and also they're worried about reputational risk. They, where they've moved assets to either the, the Jersey Islands or the Cayman Islands, and really now because of reputational risk, they want a more stable environment, and they look to the United States. And now they can use the United States, including uh, New Hampshire, most notably New Hampshire, to move their foundations. And we've seen families with considerable wealth do just that. Uh, now, for U.S. tax purposes, we believe that these foundations will be treated as a, a complex trust. So the same trust rules for income tax purposes that we discussed for, before, we believe will apply to these civil law foundations. Now, um, as we talked about before, um, because of the because of the ability to have perpetual trust, many of these trusts, trusts cited in New Hampshire, will start to accumulate wealth. And in this low interest rate environment, much of that wealth is going to be invested with capital appreciation. So the definition of income, which historically has been fairly antiquated and focused really only on interest and dividend income, has become outdated. And Thanda, could you describe to us the changes New Hampshire, in the New Hampshire Trust Code relating to the definition of income and how that might apply? Of course, Steve. New Hampshire's progressive trust laws include the New Hampshire Principal and Income Act, which is a really great tool for trustees because it permits an investment advisor to invest the trust assets for a total return without sacrificing generation of income for the income beneficiaries. And there are two major ways to do this under the New Hampshire Principal and Income Act. The first is to convert the trust into a unitrust. This allows a set percentage of the trust value, let's say 3%, to be distributed to trust beneficiaries instead of all the income, which might be very low in a low interest rate environment like we are in today. The second is to utilize the statutory power to adjust. The New Hampshire Principal and Income Act allows a trustee to exercise this power to transfer principal to income and then to pay out that income to the income beneficiaries. Using this power to adjust allows the trustee to invest for total return while allowing a reasonable payout to the income beneficiaries. This type of flexibility in how trust assets can be invested can be very helpful in administering a trust especially in today's low interest rate environment. But this is just one of the many ways in which New Hampshire trust laws provide significant flexibility. Turning to flexibility in the administration of New Hampshire trusts, many individuals and families in recent years have been utilizing New Hampshire's directed trust laws. So I thought I would take the liberty here and take a few minutes to describe New Hampshire's directed trust laws. So you might ask, what is a directed trust? A directed trust is a trust with multiple fiduciaries and quasi-fiduciaries 
who have separate responsibilities in administering the trusts. Typically, one fiduciary is directed by another to take an action regarding the trust. So as an example, an investment advisor or an investment trustee directs the administrative trustee to sign documents in order to invest in a private partnership. These trusts allow for clear division of trust administration tasks and responsibilities amongst multiple fiduciaries, and it really creates an open architecture approach to trust administration. Clients with multiple advisors like this approach. In fact, they love this approach because they can deploy different companies and different individuals to perform specific functions in the management of family wealth. In a directed trust, the different fiduciaries are only liable for their own actions and not for the actions of the other fiduciaries. So there is no requirement that they watch over each other. Clients like this as well. They are allowed to swim in their own lanes, so to speak, and manage the tasks within their control. In New Hampshire, directed and divided trusts are permitted by statutes, but it is important to note that the structure and the limited liability amongst fiduciaries is also well supported by New Hampshire case law. And the case that I'm thinking of is the Shelton v. Tamposi case. Okay, Steve, there are two final areas of administrative flexibility we should touch on. The first is trust modification provisions, and the second is postmortem validation. Could you walk us through those topics, please? Sure. Th thanks, Thonda. Now, as we talked about, trust can last for a long time and they can become rigid. And, you know, when you've got an irrevocable trust that's lasted for many years, decades, multiple generations, it can just be inflexible and just very difficult to administer. Prior to the advent of the more modern trust codes, including the New Hampshire Trust Code, the only way to fix kind of a broken trust would be to go to court and petition the court for modification or a correction of the trust itself, which of course was time consuming and expensive and you didn't always get the result uh, that you were looking for. And frankly, courts get sick of seeing litigants come to the court to modify what could be very minor changes to a trust just to enhance um, the administration of the trust. So under the trust code, there are now tools that we can utilize or can be utilized to modify or fix broken trusts. And the ones we think about are, are really non-judicial remedies to broken trusts. And the first one, and the best sounding one, of course, is decanting. And decanting is a trustee-only action, an action by the trustee, to take the trust assets and pour them, like a decanter of wine, into another trust. The decanting is, again, a sole trustee action to transfer from one trust to another. And it's based upon the state law of the trust itself. And New Hampshire is a statutory decanting law which allows for clear guidance or provides clear guidance for, for the benefits and mechanisms for decanting a trust. Now, of course, you can't decant a trust and or the decanting of a trust must be consistent with donor intent and it cannot undermine the material purpose of the trust itself, but it can be an incredibly useful and efficient tool. Another tool to modify trust is, is called the statutory trustee modification. And here there may simply be administrative provisions of the trust that just don't work anymore. So if, if there can be a reasonable change on modification to administrative provision of a trust, this very simple trustee modification can be used to fix the broken trust itself. 
And then where there are more substantive changes, something called a non-judicial settlement agreement can be used to modify the trust provisions. A non-judicial settlement agreement is really just what it sounds like. It's, it's an agreement among the parties to a trust, so-called interested parties. And those interested parties get together and they enter into an agreement. And that agreement has to be agreed to by all the interested parties, can then amend or fix or modify a more substantive provision of an irrevocable trust without going to court. Now, again, if those non-judicial remedies don't work, then there, of course, is a provision in the New Hampshire Trust Code to get a judicial modification. Again, with the special trust court, the court judge or the judge that will be hearing the case will be an expert in trust. When you go to court for a judicial modification, the court will understand the nature of it and rule efficiently. Now, that's for uh, mod trust modifications. Now, sometimes when you create a trust, there could be a concern over the validity of the trust itself. And there's so-called a pre, under the New Hampshire Trust Code, a pre-mortem validation of the trust. Now here, if you're worried about perhaps the capacity of the grantor, or you're worried about some other provision in the trust being enforceable, the, the parties can go to court and initiate a, a suit to affirm the, have the court affirm the validity of the trust. Again, the statute is consistent with New Hampshire trust law's goal of carrying out the donor's intent. It is a useful tool for the donor. So if the donor anticipates a challenge to their estate plan or to the trust they're creating, this is a mechanism by which they can go in and affirm their intent in front of the court. Now, of course, if that pre-mortem validation is not used, then of course there's a limitation on post-mortem claims against a trust. And those post-mortem claims, uh, the so-called statute of limitations of three years starts either at the moment of the donor's death or three years after information is sent to the trust beneficiaries to enable them to have notice so, so as to trigger the running of that three-year statute of limitation. Again, very useful tools to fix broken or trusts that need to be modified and also to validate the provisions of a trust to ensure that it's consistent with the grantor's uh, intent. That's really great, Steve. Thank you for that very helpful summary. So now that we've covered the key advantages of New Hampshire, I think it's important for our audience to understand what steps they need to take to take advantage of the Granite State's great trust laws. Steve, can you give us a summary on that? Yes, of, of, of course, Fonda. And really, you've got to think about the different situations in which a trust would be created or moved to New Hampshire. Now, the first one, of course, is establishing a new trust in New Hampshire. And to establish a new trust, of course, you need to create a trust instrument or declare a trust. A trust can actually be declared in New Hampshire. So, of course, the most important thing is to name a New Hampshire trustee or, or, or determine place of administration in New Hampshire. So if you're drafting a new trust in New Hampshire, you would appoint a new New Hampshire trustee, and also in the trust instrument itself, you would provide the New Hampshire trust. The New Hampshire trust code is applicable, and then you would have New Hampshire Citus and New Hampshire governing law uh, applicable to that trust. And that's that's really the most straightforward way to do it. But trusts don't always start in New Hampshire. Trusts can also start from another jurisdiction, and we see a lot of this. Um, so, for example, a trust that starts out as a trust in Massachusetts 
they want to, the, the family wants to move the trust to avail themselves of the, the benefits we've been talking about with respect to the New Hampshire Trust Code or available in the New Hampshire Trust Code. The way to do that can be as simple as naming a New Hampshire trustee, but it's often uh, other steps need to be taken, including perhaps appointing a New Hampshire trustee, perhaps decanting the trust into a new, the Massachusetts trust into a New Hampshire trust, or, or using some of the other non-judicial tools, including perhaps a non-judicial settlement agreement to modify the trust so that it is now moved to New Hampshire, where a New Hampshire trustee is appointed and New Hampshire governing law is inserted into the trust itself. So you've really got to look at the existing trust that's out of state, look at the provisions of the trust, look at the applicable law of the jurisdiction that's, that's the, of the situs of the trust, and then determine which non-judicial method is, needs to be utilized to move that trust to New Hampshire. And again, one of those non-judicial methods can be a decanting. And we see this a lot, where there's a decanting of a, a trust from out of state into New Hampshire trust. And again, here you've got to look at both the trust instrument itself to determine whether it can be decanted. And if it can't, you've got to modify it so that it can be. And then second, decant that trust. You've got to look at the governing law and the trust instrument, create a new trust in New Hampshire, and pour that trust into it. Again, very useful uh, ways to move trusts, including broken trusts, over to New Hampshire. Thonda, I know that um, to help make the benefits of New Hampshire trust more tangible, I find it useful just some examples. Tanya, you know, you've worked with many clients who have had so-called broken trusts. As you mentioned earlier, you love the flexibility of the New Hampshire trust law. If you could give us a few examples of how, we, how your clients have moved those trusts or fixed broken trusts using these various provisions of the New Hampshire trust code. Absolutely, Steve. This is really one of my favorite topics. Um, having done this for a very long time, there are lots of trusts out there that I've worked with that, that simply stopped working at some point. And so it's, it's really great when you can actually fix them. And, and New Hampshire truly has some of the best laws for doing that. So let's take an example and then I'll blow it up and try to bring in some of our other discussion points into it. Let's say we have client A and client A creates an irrevocable trust that does not allow for any distributions of principal during the beneficiary's lifetimes, at least until the youngest beneficiary reaches the age of 35. And let's say that currently all the beneficiaries are minors. Under the decanting laws of other states, such a trust could not be decanted into a new trust that would allow for opening up the principal distributions. But in New Hampshire, this trust can be decanted into a new trust which includes provisions for making discretionary distributions of principal currently by the trustee. So adding to this example, let's say that client A's trust that I just discussed is not a New Hampshire trust and does not have a New Hampshire trustee. In many cases, it is possible for a New Hampshire trustee to be appointed using one of the mechanisms you just talked about. Sometimes it's as simple as having a non-New Hampshire trustee resign and having a New Hampshire trustee appointed as successor. And let's say some or all of the administration of the trust is going to thereafter occur in New Hampshire. The trustee of client A's trust resigns and a New Hampshire trustee is appointed as the sole trustee. 
Because decanting is an administrative power, and the trust is now being in it, being administered in New Hampshire by the new New Hampshire trustee, that trustee can decant the trust under New Hampshire law into a new trust that allows for distributions of principal. Finally, let's say that client A wants to create a directed trust so that he or she can have her many advisors be involved in the administration of the trust. And this was really not possible before, at least in the way that directed trusts allow. Let's say that he or she would like to have a trustee, a trust protector, and an investment advisor. Although you could have other types of fiduciaries and quasi-fiduciaries like a notice recipient and um, investment trustee and an administrative trustee. So when the trust is decanted, it can be made into a directed trust, as long as this, as you said, Steve, does not undermine a material purpose of the trust and stays within the parameters set forth in the New Hampshire trust law. The new trust can be a directed trust, which allows for bifurcation of traditional trustee duties so that the client's various advisors can be involved in a structure that allows each to carry out their duties without oversight and involvement of the other named fiduciaries. So finally, as a bonus, let's take this example one step further, and let's also say that this trust was formerly subject to state fiduciary income tax, let's say in Massachusetts or another state. But now, that's, now that it is a New Hampshire trust with only a New Hampshire trustee, and because in New Hampshire there's no income taxation of irrevocable non-grantor trusts, which is, the, let's say that's the case here, the trust is no longer subject to state income tax. So that's a bonus. So Steve, I've given an example here and tried to blow it up a little bit about how New Hampshire trust law can really improve, improve not just fix a broken trust, but improve a, a broken trust. But I think it might also be helpful to look a little more carefully about how New Hampshire tax law can benefit trusts. So would you mind sharing an example of how you've seen clients reduce their tax exposure using New Hampshire trusts? Absolutely, Thonda. And um, some of these examples are uh, actually quite straightforward, where let's say a Massachusetts resident that invested in Tesla uh, a long time ago when it was, you know, I don't know what it was trading at, but at a lower number, let's say they invested $100,000 and they have a million dollars of appreciation in Tesla. So if they, if there's, as a Massachusetts resident, if they sold that stock, of course, they pay a 5% tax on that appreciation and that would be a $50,000 liability. Now, let's pretend that they created a, a trust in New Hampshire again without, with only a New Hampshire trustee um, with, as you mentioned before, accumulation of the income and in, in principal in the trust. They gift that Tesla stock to the trust, let's say for the benefit of their children. And then that trust is an irrevocable non-grantor trust, again, without situs or tax situs in Massachusetts. It's only subjected to tax in New Hampshire. And of course, New Hampshire doesn't tax trusts, income, dividends, or capital gains. So when the trust sells that Tesla stock and realizes the $1 million gain, there's no state income tax on that trend, on that gain. All of those assets remain in the trust and remain 
and can grow state income tax-free. Now let's change the example a bit. Now let's say that um, a founder of a New Hampshire company um, that qualifies for qualified small business stock, the Section 1202 exemption, decides that they want to gift that stock to their children. Now again, the 1202 stock is results in a ten, up to $10 million worth of tax-free gain exclusion uh, as long as the company was created after the year 2011. Now, if, if that same founder gifted stock to a New Hampshire trust in the same way, it's a non-grantor trust without any Massachusetts fiduciaries, but with a New Hampshire trustee, and now that 1202 stock is transferred, that, that trust itself um, is, in, is eligible to preserve that 1202 exemption. So now you transfer the, tr the stock to the trust, it's sold, that $10 million gain that, I'm, that I mentioned is realized, there's no federal income tax on the transfer. And again, because it's in a New Hampshire trust with a New Hampshire trustee, no state income tax. So thereby preserving the 1202 exemption and also saving a tremendous amount of state income tax on the gain realized from the transfer. So again, not only is the New Hampshire trust code of great advantage to the family in this situation, but also the New Hampshire taxation structure can result in really a great result for state income tax purposes. Thank you for going through that example, Steve. That was really helpful. I hope these illustrations have helped bring the advantages of New Hampshire trusts to life for our audience. New Hampshire really has a lot to offer in terms of tr trust features, tax laws, and flexibility that can be extremely valuable to families nationwide as well as internationally. I think that pretty much covers what we wanted to talk about today, Steve. So I'm going to turn it back over to Todd. But before I do that, I just want to say thank you to you, Steve, for being on this panel with me and for sharing your good thoughts and your enthusiasm for why New Hampshire is a great place to administer a trust. And now back to Todd. I hope you found Steve and Thonda's comments useful. For more information, go to fidtrustco.com forward slash nh rocks or reach out to our speakers. You may reach Steve Burke at steve.burke at mclean.com or 603-628-1454. And you can contact Thonda Brassard at tbrassard at fiduciary-trust.com or 603-695-4322. Thanks again for joining. The opinions expressed in this material are as of the date issued and subject to change at any time. Nothing contained herein is intended to constitute investment, legal, tax, or accounting advice, and viewers should discuss any proposed arrangement or transaction with their investment, legal, or tax advisors. Copyright 2021 Fiduciary Trust of New England and McLean Middleton.